Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And joining me today is returning guest, Spirit Island designer, R. Eric Royce. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thank you so much. It's great to be here again. Yeah, man. Well, last time I talked to you was October 2018. And aside from all the quarantine business that's going on right now, what's been going on with Jagged Earth since then? Because last time we talked, you were mm -hmm. like, well, you know, we had the Kickstarter, but now the actual development process has begun. So, you know, where are you at right now? Is Jagged Earth wrapped up from a design and development perspective? Yep, absolutely. The files were all sent off to the publisher sometime, I'm not sure exactly how many months ago, but back uh, vague, sometime between last October, last February. I think it was maybe last January. Again, I don't know exactly. Once once I hand off the files to Greater Than Games, generally it sort of you know stops being my department. And uh, <laughs> so exactly exactly when the button got pushed to send them over, I'm not sure. Uh, but development, uh, you know, most largely wrapped up last year, uh, sort of in the the middle of 2019. Although there were some sort of final trailing bits going on through the summer and the like, uh, and that and during that time they were doing all the layout, and making sure all the art got in, got, getting all that stuff. So get, getting everything finalized, and then of course there was proofing, which always takes you know a certain amount of attention for any game. And Spirit Island is a game with a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for of, sure, <laughs> lots of stuff in it. And uh, so like the first time around when the original base game proofing came around. Uh, that took an unexpectedly long time. This time, it took an expectedly long time. Uh, <laughs> good, but, good. Well, let, let's talk about that department, your department. So, yeah. you know, we we end that call in October 2018, and you have through uh, the, the mid-2019 in order to do that development. What are the mm -hmm. sorts of things from the, the time that the Kickstarter initially rolled until you handed over all the files that actually needed to happen? Did you have all the groundwork of the spirits before Jagged Earth was announced? All the, all the spirits were known at that point. Uh, there was before the Kickstart back sort of, uh, I don't know, that spring, I think, spring 2018, I went out to Geekway for the West and met with Greater Than Games. And when I was there, we sat down and we figured out sort of like, okay, of the candidate spirits that, I, that we have, which have, which we've been, we've been testing, which ones would make a good roster for Jagged Earth. Uh, and mostly it was based on which ones were most complete and sort of tested best. But there were a few which ended up omitted because they might fit better in some other future expansion, uh, just in certain terms of theme or the like. And so we had that all set out. And there was one, I think there was one late substitution just like a month or two before the Kickstarter, um, which resulted in, so we, but we also specified like one or two alternates because Spirits are in testing, but you never really know, you know, you can get a sense of, okay, it's getting better, 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 but you don't really know that it's going to totally work until you're done with it. And so there's, you know, if, if you have a group of 12 spirits and you say, okay, great, you know, these all have a 90 to 95% chance of being fine. That means statistically <laughs> one of them probably won't be. So we had a couple of alternates and one of those stepped in. Um, uh, and so that one, that was a uh, downpour. So Downpour was a little bit less finished as of the time of the Kickstarter uh, and turned out to be one of the spirits that needed more balancing attention. But we knew as of the Kickstarter start, like all, all of them had core mechanics done, had had a fair amount of testing done. They all had, 
they're all done with design is what I'd say. Like the core concept was complete and it was a matter of tweaking and balancing. Well, I got to know about some of these ones that were left on the cutting room floor for possible future expansions. And I, I'm sure you got to be a little bit cagey about what you can share. But can you even like tease what some of the cool stuff that that may be on the horizon for future Spirit Island content is? Let's see. Uh, if I'm sufficiently vague about it, I think I can be. Excellent. Uh, I'll take it. Uh, especially because uh, I can, I, you know, it, even for the spirits which are done with design on the Kickstarter, they say this is subject to change and could look totally different by the time you see it. The <laughs> concepts I'm about to mention, even more so. Like sometimes I'll start exploring a concept and it just ends up dead ending. So in, uh, but there, for example, there was one spirit which started the game not just with its four unique power cards, but with an additional few power cards, or not power cards, uh, an additional few cards which were not power cards, um, which it used in a way different from power cards. Uh, and, you know, there, I think there were, in some incarnations, there were three of them, and others there were five of them. Uh, exactly how they worked changed enough times that I'm not even going to say how they worked, because uh, it'll be different by the time uh, the spirit ever comes out. But that was one notion. Uh, there's... Another one, I've made no secret of the fact that at some point in the future, I'd like to do a Dahan-centric expansion. Uh, there was at least one spirit which was, oh, like, you know, this really belongs thematically in a more Dahan-centric expansion. It, it's a, a concept that uh, sort of thematically played with, with the Dahan, although in a very different way than Thunderspeaker did. Well, that's really interesting to, to think about because, you know, here you're describing one real mechanically focused thing, which is the, the additional cards that you're playing. And then you're also describing <laughs> someone who's fitting in thematically in how mm -hmm. they interact with the, the denizens of the island yep. itself. Is it interchangeable for you where you draw your inspiration from? Do you generally start with some sort of mechanical function and see how that would thematically be interpreted in the, the world of the game? Or do you start with a thematic idea and how would a spirit who interacts with the theme of the game actually be affecting the mechanics? It goes either way. Some spirits come from one, some come from the other. But whichever one I start on, I end up ping-ponging to the other very rapidly. Mm, so I see. If I have a mechanical idea, the first thing I do will invariably be to say, okay, this is a neat mechanic. What might it represent thematically? And brainstorm thematic ideas. And then that tends to inform, then it bounces back. And that may change what the mechanical idea becomes. It's like, oh, that was a neat idea, but it's going to be, you know, it's uh, thematically representing this aspect of nature and that aspect of nature will work a little differently. So maybe it should go more like this. On the other side, if I come up with a thematic idea, then after I do my initial thematic brainstorm, I'll be like, okay, how could this be represented mechanically? Come up with a bunch of ideas and then figure out, okay, which of these are most mechanically interesting, which haven't been done before. And then again, that might tie back to, okay, that doesn't quite fit in, which, which fits better. It's, it's a process. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, docking two spaceships or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, the two need to meet up, but there's wiggle room on both ends. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, in the case of the of, of the one with extra cards, that spirit actually came from a thematic concept, which then led to these extra cards that the spirit starts off with. Uh, so that even though I've presented it thematically, that one actually started thematic. Even though I presented it mechanically, that one started thematically. Of the new spirits that you have in Jagged Earth, which mm -hmm. one do you feel like had the the most iteration on it? The the one that was maybe the hardest to nail exactly how it was going to operate within the game. 
I'm not sure I can give a single one, but I can give a cluster of them. I'll take them. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it correlates very highly with complexity of the spirits. Uh, the highest, all the highest, the three highest complexity spirits: uh, Finder of Paths Unseen, uh, Starlight Seeks Its Form, and um, Fractured Days Split the Sky. Those three all took a lot of iteration because they're doing a lot of things and doing some very weird things. So they took a lot of attention. In, and in each case, it was a different sort of attention. Each of the three has their own story that I could cheerfully tell. Of the high complexity spirits, the, the, the ones which took most attention were probably Vengeance is a Burning Plague and uh, Downpour Drenches the World. Vengeance, mostly for balance. Vengeance's core concept came together pretty quickly, but it was massively overpowered. And so it needed to be scaled back repeatedly until, but while doing that, it's much easier to take a spirit and make it more powerful while keeping its theme intact than it is to make it less powerful while keeping its theme intact. Because I when see. you're stripping out power, you might end up removing some of the dynamics which make that spirit which connect with that spirit's theme so the but it's nearly always pretty easy to add power in thematically appropriate ways and sometimes being able to add power allows you to represent facets of a theme which you couldn't otherwise get in are there spirits that you preserved within the game that had dramatic changes from how their their whole mechanical concept even worked uh downpour drenched the world went through i think three major iterations and that means like a major iteration with many smaller internal iterations of course even before the kickstarter happened uh it was its core conceit of repeating powers multiple times as uh uh a representation of its nature of the it is what it is is um too much of a good thing basically or lots of a good thing possibly too much of it uh one thing just a torrent uh so Previously, it had done all kinds of things like messing around with turning lands into wetlands and flooding and isolation, and it took many iterations to find that core conceit. Then once that happened, it turns out that that mechanical representation has a lot of very non-obvious effects. In there, There's these follow-on effects, like it's okay, if you can repeat powers lots of times, you end up wanting relatively few plays, card plays so that players will tend to focus more on here i have this one card like you know, downpour's mechanical shtick is like i only can play this one power card this turn but i can use it four times uh or maybe i can play these two but i can use them between between the two of them i can use them five times uh and that's great and neat and interesting but it means that with only one or two power cards in play that the amount of variance in number of elements they have in play is much smaller between its lowest plays and its highest plays than other spirits, which means its innate power gating gets weird because the number of power cards a spirit can have in play is sort of a cap on how many of given element it can have, barring special things like elemental boon being given to it. So it ran into these weird scaling issues where either it just didn't get more powerful enough or it could get more powerful too quickly uh if it rushed plays really quickly and so that was a that was a strange and thorny knot which ended up then getting sort of untied slash cut 
by turning its energy track into an elements track, uh, which was something I'd been wanting to do with the spirit anyway. Like I've had spirits which did that before, but it always ended up getting cut. And so this was a prime example. It's like, okay, great, excellent. I think it ends up having one or two spaces where you get more energy on it. But mostly it's just like, here, have more elements on the top track. It seems like because this is a, a big expansion for now a beloved game that people are well acquainted for, this is mm -hmm. a lot of, of room for getting creative with the spirits. Like this can be oh, yes. Eric unleashed, you know, just coming up with yep. concept after concept. People already have familiarity with Spirit Island, so this way you can kind of test the bounds of what the game can deliver. But mm -hmm. are any of the spirits in the expansion new player friendly? I mean, you have the the original four, right? That you you have aspects coming out for, and yep. you you are going to evolve them. But are there going to be spirits that you think people would be comfortable learning the game with in Jagged Earth? I wouldn't recommend any of the spirits in Jagged Earth for a first time player, but there's a number of them which are moderate complexity, which I feel like a player who has a few, you know, anybody who's comfortable playing Thunderspeaker or Spread of Rampant Green uh, should be fine with. Uh, somebody who has, and it, I can't say how many games that is because for some people that's on game two and for other people that's on game 18. Uh, it really varies per person. So no, the, originally I assumed that I would need to put in a pair of low complexity spirits because you know, okay, all right, let's try and keep a few more. Low complexity spirits are by far and away the hardest to make. They are not necessarily the most time consuming to test because once they're made, they're simple, but getting them, you know, what's that quote? There's some, some famous quote about like, you know, uh, please, uh, I apologize for this length, the length of this letter. I did not have time to write a shorter one. Oh, Being yeah, concise yeah, yeah. and effectively communicating takes effort. Similarly, having a spirit which does everything it needs to do, but is in a very tight package also is you have very few brushstrokes, metaphorically speaking. You're trying to paint a picture and you're being told, okay, you get exactly five brushstrokes, paint a picture of a cathedral. It's like, okay, all right, like that, that takes a lot more talent than painting a picture of a cathedral using 100 brushstrokes. Um, you need to really get it through, even though the end result is going to seem much simpler. Uh, the, so I'd assumed I was going to need to do a low complexity spirit or two. And I had, I don't know, like four concepts in the, in the queue, but one after another, like one didn't work out because it's presence placement pattern was all wonky. And so it ended up being either, you know, too subject to presence rush. And it like, I'm like, okay, so I have it up on blocks, re tinkering with it. And another one was interesting. It was an extremely co-op focused spirit, but it ran into some problems that intrinsically like heavy support spirits in spirit island run into certain difficulties and it was running into them and i needed to retool and retrench and also it turns out that it would work better in, with some future stuff which hasn't been released yet so okay all right so that's probably not coming out and then there was this other one which was working as low complexity but really had this one subsystem which was awesome but would push it up into medium complexity uh, and that became shifting memory of ages which was included because greater than games came to me and said no actually our own data and the data from all the distributors says that people who buy expansions are overwhelmingly people who have played a fair amount of the base game and what they're looking for is more and they're not looking for the low complexity stuff like you know so no you know you you have no more than two but it would be totally fine to have zero and i'm like great fantastic <laughs> because you know like if i had had one and it fit i would have included it i wasn't like on a crusade against them right uh, they're nice to have but 
And I enjoy, like, if I'm playing casually, recreationally with my friends, I play low-complexity spirits as much as any of the others. Like, they're not just for beginners. Totally. Um, you know, but uh, where I was at the time with the spirits I had at the time, uh, it was much easier to just go, okay, great, moderate and up, moderate complexity and up. Uh, especially because going higher complexity lets me get more detailed in my thematic implementations. Um, so, you know, shifting memory of ages could have survived without the elemental token banking system that it has. But it's awesome. It's fantastic. And it's a great representation of something which the spirit does. You know, there's a children's book that I've loved since I was a kid. It was called oh. Math Curse. It's by John Sheshka. And the opening of the, the story has this kid in their, like, third grade class. And their teacher, Mrs. Fibonacci, says, you know, you can think of almost anything as a math problem. And the kid is cursed with this math curse throughout the rest of the book is everything is a math problem. And I almost <laughs> wonder if you are spirit cursed now in that every <laughs> aspect of your life, you start examining through the lens of could this be a spirit in Spirit Island? I mean, it's such an imaginative game and you can really get buck wild in the, the thematic concepts that you can interpret into the game. Like, do you find yourself just interpreting all sorts of things around you as possibilities for spirits and spirit powers in my day-to-day -day life less so uh, if i'm out in nature more so uh whenever i'm you know if i'm out hiking or if uh, a really impressive thunderstorm sweeps in or something like that then yeah that was part of the part of the yeah, there, there have been a couple of spirits where there have been specific moments where I'm out in nature where I can look back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, like, you know, many minds move as one came from a number of different places. But the catalyzing instant was when I was out for a walk and this flock of like 60 Canada geese all kind of looked up at me in this one moment in synchrony with this. You want to start something? Kind of look on. <laughs> you know, not, not that geese have facial expressions as we know it, but their body language is like, yeah. Um, the Canada geese around here, like, you know, they don't they don't take any any. Uh, you know, they're the ones who are making the crap. They're not taking the crap. Hey, I'm Alaskan. I I know what's up with Canadian geese. They they oh, are yeah. fierce creatures. I don't <laughs> want to mess with them. Yep. Well, I know that spirits are certainly the, the flashiest aspect of Spirit Island. They're the one that people want to engage with. But the the meat of Spirit Island is is all the rest of the things that flush that out, the things that you interact with. And so throughout Jagged Earth, like what were some of the other aspects of it that were the most complicated to address during this development process? Was it having the separate island system or was it some of the new... Uh, like invader kingdoms? Was it the aspect cards? Like what was a, a real significant design hurdle for you? The biggest is adversaries. No questions asked because they are like layer cakes uh, or actually a better comparison would be geology where each level builds on the last. So if you have any instability beneath, it creates instability above. You really need to work them out a few layers at a time because if you're working on adversary levels five and six and then you need to go back and change level two, unless you're just doing something like, okay, swap two and three so that the top upper, upper levels are unaffected, then if it's like, oh, let's, let's make a core mechanical change to how level two of this adversary works, it will affect everything above it. So you really want to hash out the lower levels first and get them solid and stable, which means that you have this sort of incremental progressive 
all right, make sure that each thing works uh, before moving on too much to the next one. Thankfully, the, with the new uh, combining adversary system, it's more possible to do that because otherwise you have like, you know, playtesters who are used to going like up against difficulty like eight to 10, trying to test difficulty one and two adversaries. And they're like, I don't know, it seems easy. I have no idea. It's, <laughs> you know, I stomped them on turn four. So like, uh, um, but then if you like, you know, cross them with the Brandenburg pressure level four, then it all works out okay. Well, so. you have so much to test and account for in this game. I mean, just thinking about the minor and major powers alone, I mean, that that in combination with the different adversaries that you have, in combination with the different spirits that may be at the table, like, how do you even play test this game? What, is, <laughs> what does that look like? For Jagged Earth, it was in, in many ways way easier than it was for the, for the base game. For the base game, it was all very sort of, uh, you know, there there was no fixed point in space. It was all, okay, all right, let's hope that, okay, these adversaries, we want them all, we want a coherent difficulty scale, but like, uh, I don't know, we'll take this one as a reference point and kind of pat everything towards it. Same thing with the spirits. Like there was no established difficulty or uh, power level for the spirits. It was, uh, so this time around, at least there was an existing sort of corpus, which playtester could go against. And also uh, just more people who were playing the game at a high level. So in, in that case, it was it was good. Starting off, I would generally ask playtesters to not play against new adversaries with new spirits uh, as much, at least when we're going for anything resembling balance. If you're going for like concept, that's fine. But if you're going for any sort of balance testing or, uh, you know, adversaries were one of the first things I started working on. They're also one of the last things I finished off. Uh, I finished uh, the very last bits of testing last year were not for how does this adversary work? That was nailed down. It was for how difficult is this adversary? What is the difficulty level which should be printed on it? Uh, you know, is this a 10 or an 11 or a 12? Um, and so that was, you know, because of course, you know, you have to go through everything else and figure out all the lower levels. Then you have to figure out the upper levels. And now you figure out how difficult the upper levels are, uh, which you can't do until they're mechanically pinned down. The major and minor powers, I tend to just mix in, although I'll often, I say mix in, I'll just like, I'll throw them into a game, but I'll often have separate decks for like new powers to test and old powers, uh, which already exist. And then for any power draw of four, I'll say take two from the new deck, two from the old, because if you do all new, that doesn't, that's not a good measurement for, okay, would I take this over something which already exists? Or is this just always dominating over existing choices? But if you just shuffle them in, then if you're dealing with, you know, they may only be a third or a quarter of the new deck and they don't come up as often as you like. So you kind of want them to come up frequently. So I'll sort of try and artificially make sure that they come up often, sometimes even stacking the deck if there's a particular trouble. If there's like, OK, right, this power, I'm not really sure about it, like a major, which I don't know how it's going. I'll make sure it's in the top, you know. 10 major powers in the deck in a three or four player game so that it'll come up in one of the first few draws. You know, the major powers are some of the most cinematic moments in the game, right? I mean, especially when you get into, like, Branch and Claw and suddenly there's major powers that are removing entire pieces of the island. And mm -hmm. those are some of the moments that are most memorable for me and the, the thing that I'm most looking forward to in, in having happen in Jagged Earth. Like, do you have some of those really potent moments waiting in the wings that you're excited for people to get to the table? Yeah, there's one. Uh, I can spoil one of them. I already spoiled spoiled it on Reddit, but not everybody saw that particular one. Uh, so uh, I'll give the count, like, you know, all right, if you don't want spoilers, then like fast forward, I don't know, you know, 60 <laughs> seconds or something. Um, so there's, uh, 
there's one called Draw Down into a Consuming Void, uh, which gathers a whole bunch of stuff, including cities, then obliterates, it does, I don't know, like 50, you know, some 10 damage, 20 damage, something along with it. Uh, and then it has a threshold, uh, which is not elemental, which is a first thing. Oh. Instead, it is, if you have no other power cards in play. Okay. Then you can forget a major and a minor and a unique to repeat this power on the same land. <laughs> okay. Uh that's amazing. It's like pulsating and bringing everything in. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's 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 basically a black hole. Uh, it's it's just you know drawing in everything and wrecking it. Well, I shouldn't say everything because this power does not cause blight. It's only drawing in the things which shouldn't belong there. The trees, the landscape, it's all fine. It's just the invaders uh, and the dahan. Don't do this near the dahan. Uh, or it's also not friendly to beasts or spirit presence. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you want to be careful about it. But like, it doesn't cause blight. Um, but it's a it's a big one. Um, and uh, it costs lots of energy, gives you no elements. Um, it is uh, in many ways an un, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not anti-elemental, but it is, it is a void. Um, it, it, it does not have any of the elemental energies of the world. So that is one of them. Uh, there's another one, which I'm not going to spoil because I'm looking forward to people unwrapping it and going, oh, you can do that. Uh, that's <laughs> so I, I'm not telling it. And um, actually there may be two or three like that, or maybe four. Uh, you know, uh, one of the design principles of major powers is like, you know, they need to have a certain number of just raw, like, beat sticks, which do a lot of damage and stuff. But right. there should also be, like, uh, ideally enough that in most major power choices of four, you look at them, you're like, well, that would make this game go in a new direction, wouldn't it? Like, that's mm -hmm. sort of the, the ideal, is that the, it can just change up how you approach the game, especially if you get it early. With the minor and major powers that you're designing, do you ever think about them from the perspective of, like, this is ideally paired with this spirit, but is overall fairly useful for a, a good handful of spirits? Because I know at least in Branch and Claw in the base game, there are certainly some powers where you're like, this is thematically and mechanically tied to this spirit. Like, it is exceptionally potent in their hands. Absolutely. Uh, it is some. It is a litmus test I'll often use is I'll take a, it can work be for either minors or majors. With majors, major powers, I tend to think of it in sort of the, I don't know, you know, anime style, ultimate attack kind of thing. <laughs> like, you know, um, see and see which spirits can easily hit the threshold and think, okay, is this an appropriate, given what this power does, does that work with these spirits? Uh, for a minor, it's more, okay, do the elements given on this minor power, like what spirits are incentivized to take this given their innate powers? And, you know, does that make sense? The elemental system is there. It creates, it's there to create a thematic linkage between powers and spirits while still giving spirits the freedom to change and not be who they were at the start of the game. So, you know, that that's very much part of their purpose. Uh, and like, you know, there's a, uh, mostly it works out really well. There's a few, there's a few whiffs like, um, call to trade and branch and claw has elements which work for the reason, like the associations are valid on paper, but if you look at which spirits are incentivized to take the card, it doesn't end up quite working out thematically. Uh, it's a little weird one. If I ever, uh, if there's ever like a second edition or something, then that's one of the ones where I'll go and tweak the elements and fix that so that it's, cause there are some spirits where call to trade is much more apropos. Uh, but it just doesn't end up quite syncing up. The others, however, most for the most part, and I'm very happy with where the minor power decks have ended up for both published stuff and Jagged Earth. 
Um, and which spirits are good with this is absolutely, it's not always like the first consideration, but it's definitely something I'll take into account. Spirit Island is, uh, I've talked about it many times, is one of my favorite, if not my current favorite game. It's a game that I love playing solo, I love playing multiplayer, I love experimenting with all the different spirits and everything. But one of the criticisms about the game, even among people who enjoy the game quite a bit, is mm -hmm. that there's sometimes a, a, an element of anticlimax, right? You know, like you start playing the game and then you are up against this really insurmountable obstacle and then you pass a threshold mm -hmm. and you know I've won this game, but there's still 30 to 45 minutes of cleanup of, of acting after that because you, you've reached a certain level of power between you and the other players. You've done whatever it, it needs to have happen, but then you're just carrying out actions until the, the final victory condition is met. Is that something you see as inherent to the game or is that something that you've tried to address either through adversaries or other elements? It is something that I think is moderately baked into the game as it is. There are mitigating factors. Uh, one is that people, will th because the mid game is looks so overwhelming in terms of uh, the things, on average, many people play on a difficulty level, level lower than they could actually win on. For uh, sure. Uh, and if you do that, then you will get more of the effect which you just described. Uh, in general, the the closer, the the more difficult the game you give yourself relative to your own skill level, the less that will happen, and the closer victory uh, will tend to come to you know it'll be like okay, all right, are we holding on this turn? Okay, yes. Can we squeak out a win this turn? Yes, we can. Good because I don't know what would have happened next turn. Events can also uh, help mitigate it, but even in those cases, like with events, and if you're playing on a good difficulty level, it can still crop absolutely crop up. Uh, and it is something that ideally I'd like to design around, but uh, I've done some experimenting with things which might be able to help mitigate it a bit more. But they would probably require either some structural changes, which I don't think would work well as a retrofit. So mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing which would have to wait for like a second edition. Or I have ideas which. I have had in my head, but I just honestly haven't had time to test. Uh, and they might also uh, sort of in the same category as boosting the difficulty and using events to add some uncertainty. The, uh, I suspect they wouldn't be a panacea, which would make it vanish under the winds, but which would, you know, be like, okay, now it is less of a thing that happens. Totally, um, totally. So, but yeah, no, it's something on my mind. It's something I'd like to get rid of. I see it as a... Uh, a flaw in the game, not a critical flaw, like a, huh, no, the game would be better if it didn't do that. Uh, so it would be nice to address, um, but it's not worth uh, gutting the rest of the game just to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, obviously the game isn't broken. You know, you don't want to entirely fix it. People people dig it. It's one of the most yep. popular board games in existence right now. And, and speaking of it in existence it's now in virtual space because it just came out as a digital version were you involved at all in the digital development or is that just something you were like hey i've been informed this is going to be in a digital game now but that's someone else's department i was involved to the extent that my time allowed uh between a variety of other obligations i i could not get super heavy into it uh but uh, the uh, Handelabra, the team at Handelabra was great about sort of, you know, talking to me and consulting with me on things. 
they've been super good about you know making sure that the game is faithful to the rules uh and were very clear with me like you know if i had opinions on things please like come forward they said they, they were very very uh they were great about that which was fantastic um i am particularly looking it's in, it's in early access right now and a lot of the sound design is not yet finished you know because it's early access uh or at least it wasn't last I played. I, I have been focusing on other things now, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, so so I haven't actually played it in a few weeks. So I'm not sure exactly where it stands at this instant, especially by the time this this uh, podcast comes out. But uh, as of my last play, the sound wasn't finished, but like I did a whole bunch of talking with their sound designer about like what types of sounds would be appropriate for the different spirits and layering them together and that kind of stuff, which was loads of fun. Uh, so... Yeah, you know, some involvement, and they occasionally will ping me with obscure edge cases to rules, uh, and, which <laughs> in it, at least one case has resulted in, oh, all right, we need to formalize this thing for the game as a whole, because, like, it's only kind of vaguely sort of very occasionally relevant for the tabletop version, but in a digital version, which needs to adhere to the rules strictly because the computer needs to know what the rules are, it's actually super important. Give me um, an example. What is that? Sure. Uh, Thunder Speaker has... Uh, two innate powers, each of which has a four-air threshold, which says this power may be fast. The question is, if you have four-air, but nothing else, so that the power would do nothing else, mm. does that count as using the power? I see. Yeah. Because yeah. playtesters were like, I'm being told I have this innate power available for use, but it doesn't do anything. All I hit was that one threshold, which seems kind of weird. And so there they go to me, they're like, how should it work? It's like, well... That's an interesting question because most of the time it's not mechanically relevant, but every now and then it is. Oh, here's another neat thing I can preview from uh, Jagged Earth. Uh, in Jagged Earth, there's a minor power which is um, uh, called Scream Disease into the Wind, which is actually a quote from the flavor text from uh, Branch of Claw, which enough people have told me they like uh, that I'm like, okay, let's make this into a power. power. <laughs> um, and, and to give credit uh, uh, where credit is... Uh, uh, do uh, uh, the inspiration for that particular turn of phrase is from uh, came from a song called "It Screams Disease" by a group named Carfax Abbey. Um, but anyhow, uh, so this power card, "Scream Disease into the Wind," uh, is a boon you play on another spirit. It gives them both a plus one range, and once during the turn, after they use a power card, after they use a power on a land, they may also add a disease to that land. So the question becomes. If someone played that on Thunderspeaker, would Thunderspeaker be able to use one of their, uh, an empty innate power to place a disease? Uh, so it is mechanically relevant, although not yet. Um, and so after a bunch of, and it, it can crop up for other things as well. Shroud of Silent Mist has a presence movement, which keys off of using a power. And the Jagged Earth rulebook goes so far as to say like, innate powers where you hit no, where you hit no thresholds are not considered used. So a Shroud of Silent Mist can't just like use its innates with no effects every turn. Um, so, and it finally came down to, okay, all right, after a bunch of, of thinking and looking at things and figuring out, okay, what precedent do we want to set here? Uh, the idea is no, there's some game effects, range buffs, changing uh, fast versus slow, and a couple of other things, which are kind of um, sort of internal modifiers, meta effects. And if all you have are those, you're not the power doesn't do anything, and you're not considered to be doing anything on the board. The power is not used if all you're doing is adding range to it, but it still sure. can't accomplish anything. Um, so uh, that is uh, 
so that is a, an example of a rules clarification, which sort of came out of that, um, which came out of the digital process. Well, that's the geeky kind of minutia that I love exploring. And I, I know that there's a lot of game designers and, and game developers and even publishers who love listening to these interview podcasts who love that kind of minutia about playtesting, about like interesting, minute questions that come up through development. But I, I can't spend all my time talking about Spirit <laughs> Island because you also have another game that just kickstarted and in inevitably is going to hit retail release here, and mm -hmm. that's For Science with Gray Fox Games. So yes. tell me about this game. This seems like a dramatic shift from what you're best known for, Spirit Island. All of a sudden, you have a 15-minute real-time dexterity spatial puzzle game. What's up with this? <laughs> So for science, it is actually in some way, I, it predates Spirit Island, the original what? design. Yes, <laughs> not by a lot. Um, so back in 2012, when I had my first kid, the, uh, our, I had two designs, which were sort of in, in the late stages, which I was like, okay, these are the closest designs I have to being pitchworthy. One was Spirit Island and the other was for science. Uh, and the two signed... For Science took a little longer to sign, but it was signed, I signed it with Gray Fox in 2015. It has just been going through development for five years. Wow. Um, That's incredible. It is, yeah. So it's a, uh, and anyway, as you say, it's a real time dexterity spatial co op. You and your uh, fellow players are uh, sort of a variety of scientists and or managers and or lab assistants. Uh, and or the coffee guy uh, in a sort of um, slightly quirky and corporate uh, process plague laboratory um, in the sort of near future. You're attempting to fight off deadly diseases. You were never really expected to be on the front lines. Other you know teams were out there were much better organized, better funded, had better glossy brochures, had like you know megacorps in their pocket, but. Through one thing and another, they are all either you know unavailable, sick, or accidentally locked in malfunctioning emergency bunkers. And so it is up to you and your team of slightly quirky, slightly misfit scientists to save the world. You are attempting to take design cards, which uh -huh. have pictures of blocks on them, and you are placing them cooperatively to uh, fulfill certain requirements in terms of what blocks show, what blocks are touching what, what is showing on these cards in order to meet the requirements to make design cures for certain diseases. After you have then, you know, put them all together, then you take this thing which you've, you know, which you've designed, let's say a simple one would be like this, uh, and you then uh, need to take the blocks which are shown here and with one side being down, where this shows this must touch the table, every pair of lines shows what's touching and what's not. And you then need to build this structure, which you have designed in order to basically synthesize the cure. Uh, after you have built the structure out of physical building blocks in real time, uh, then that earns you sort of uh, both knowledge about the diseases in question and sort of side data, which you use to, to get these master cure tiles, which you puzzle together in order to capture insight into what is in common between all the diseases, fabricate a master cure and win the game. On paper, this seems like about as much of a departure from Spirit Island as <laughs> can be, but I imagine that, that from a designer perspective, there, there are certain commonalities to your approach and mm -hmm. like, how would you describe 
what makes a, an Eric Royce joint. I've often said that this game, like, if you're looking for objective criteria, the three things that this game has in common with Spirit Island are it was designed by me, it has spatial relations, and it's a co-op. There you go. Somebody recently pointed out there's a fourth thing, which I'm just narrowing in on, which is it uses interlocking simple systems to create complexity. Uh, in Spirit Island, you know, a lot of people say, like, you know, once you get the game, like, it has a fairly simple phase progression. You know, you do your, your spirit stuff, fast powers, invaders, slow powers, lather, rinse, repeat. Playing power cards, like, the core concept is pretty simple. The elemental system is pretty simple. Fear is pretty simple. But when you take each of these systems, all these systems, and add them together, you get a very, very rich, complex uh, 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 environment. Same thing is true with Science or Die. Uh, the the process of designing cures is very straightforward. The process of taking a design and making a build out of it is very straightforward. Uh, spending things which you have earned is very, very simple. And puzzling together master cure tiles is also very simple. Uh, but when you put all these together, especially the feedback loop between the master cure tile, uh, which you're trying to puzzle together, isn't just victory, but as you get more and more, as you capture more and more insight, it will buff many of your special powers uh, to make you better able to fight the disease. Once you add that feedback loop in, then it creates this nice, rich ecosystem, especially when you combine it with the thing of real-time constraints, like you're constrained in time, you're constrained in space. Like if you need a block, you need to be able to physically reach it or ask somebody to hand it to you. Uh, and you are constrained in the number of blocks you have available to you and in your attention to what you can do. So uh, all those things create this, you know, it feels very, very different at low player counts and high player counts. Like in a, in a one or two player game, you're going to be doing a little bit of everything. You know, you don't really have a choice. Uh, you know, you're going to be the one designing and building and doing the master cure and verifying other people, you know, your teammates build and thinking about all the pieces and you're going to be doing them fairly sequentially in a five, uh, but there's some things you don't need to worry about. Like you're not going to run out of blocks in a six player game. If everybody tries to build at the same time, you're going to run out of blocks. So you need to coordinate and be like, okay, I'm going to build this big complicated thing here. If the two of you can work on these designs while I build it, and then you can do your workshop builds while I'm doing this other thing and, you know, getting the master cure set up. So you end up with this interpersonal coordination, um, which ends up needing to happen, which adds an entirely different dimension to it all. Um, and a degree of what I find to be pleasant hecticness. But. <laughs> so you you have this design that was originally signed in 2015, five years ago, yep. and then you have Spirit Island, yes. which has taken on a life of its own and inevitably yes. took a huge amount of attention for uh, getting Jagged Earth to, to the state that it's ready to publish and yep. is now in the, the actual production stage. Are you still pitching games? Are you coming up with new designs, working with publishers? You know, are are you actively looking for for new publication? I have designs I'm working on. Due to having two kids and work and having all of my design time taken by Spirit Island and for Science, my pipeline kind of went dry for a mm -hmm. while. I've started to fill it back up, but it's always in like fits and starts because it's like, I'll, I'll get some work on other designs in and then Jagged Earth will take over my attention for six months. Yep, or, yep. Uh, okay, like I just started, um, Jagged Earth had wrapped up and I started doing some of my own work and some collaboration, uh, you know, with another designer I've been wanting to work with for ages and things were going interestingly with that. And then for science, it's like, 
Kickstarter's happening. Okay, great. Okay, all right, gotta focus on this. Um, you know, get all get all the I's dotted and T's crossed and pay attention to that and answer questions and get files ready and make sure that the you know files the publisher is working off of are the same as the files I'm working off of. Uh, also, pandemics are distracting. And so, like, you know, between just like the news and social distancing and like our kids being home 24 seven, uh, that means I've slowed way down. Uh, but yes, I do have things that I'm pitching uh, at Origins last year, I think it was. Uh, no, two years ago, uh, I had a very early stage prototype, which a bunch of like three separate designers in Proto Alley said, you need to go and pitch this to company X in the in the hall right now. And I will go and make an introduction for you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, Sounds I only good. came up with this three days ago. I don't think it's ready yet. But when three separate people tell you that, it's like, okay, great. I'll go do that. It didn't end up going anywhere. And I can see why. Like after playing with it some more, it's like, yeah, no, I think I'm reaching the same conclusion that they did, which is this is, this is a great idea, but it's only half-baked so far. Um, and I've had a couple of one or two designs in the interim which I've sort of shown off and like, this would be a really good fit for this publisher. Mm -hmm. So let me go like talk to them because if they are interested, I can develop it in their direction. Like, you know, they may have a, a, a world which they want developed in, or they may have opinions about which way they want it to go. And so I've got done those and gotten some feedback, but I'm only just beginning to build up to the point where I might have pitch worthy stuff again. I'm looking forward to getting there, but working on these things, which I already have out there is so much fun. So. Yeah, you know, yeah. I can't complain. Well, you just strike me as such an imaginative and creative guy who who's Thank very you. thoughtful about the the projects that you're working on, and you know these two examples for science and Spirit Island. Like I said, they're they're about as seemingly divergent as as can be, and that seems like the type of thing that you're really interested in. I mean, you see that in Spirit exactly. Island alone, you have spirits that are dramatically different from one another, trying to test the boundaries of what you can play with within that system. And mm -hmm. so I imagine that that's probably similar for how you approach games. You know, you don't want to design yes. Spirit Island 2. You want to design something that's completely different than what you've done in the past. And I mm -hmm. wonder if as you're making pitches with the monumental success of Spirit Island, if some mm -hmm. of the reaction that, that you'll you'll get is like, well, this is kind of cool, but can you make something kind of closer to spirit Island? Like, do you have something like that in the, the back burner that you can, uh, you know, show me a publisher might do something in that very faint direction in terms of looking for a more heavyweight game, say, or, uh, in terms of like broadly speaking game weight or very thematic game or something like that. Uh, cause not all of my designs have been like heavy, heavy theme, like uh, fealty. My first published design was very much a lightly themed abstract. The, but beyond that, no. Publishers are, if anything, like I have an aesthetic and personal preference for diversity of, of games. Publishers are keenly aware, like, if you publish something, it better be novel in some way. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I think, I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard something like, you know, there's three types of games which do well. Um, games which are about sort of refinement where they aren't necessarily new, but they're one of the best examples of whatever they are that is out there. Like, cause they're so polished. There is something where it's like, Ooh, that does something really new or that does something so bizarre. I can't believe it possibly works. <laughs> you know, where you kind of ha have like, you know, incredible polish versus Ooh, interesting selling point versus like the train wreck. How does that go? Um, and those are the, like those are the things that they can actually get people to be interested in because there's so much competition for attention. 
So no, I, I don't think that most publishers are going to want me to design something which is just like, you know, Spirit Island reskin. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that. And I don't think they'd want like the closest that might happen is if Greater Than Games came to me and said they wanted, uh, uh, I don't know, like, you know, uh, like the Spirit Island dice game, like basically same concept, same IP, different type of game manifestation um, type of thing. Yo, um, let's talk about Spirit Island dice game. You know, we might need this. Uh, I, <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. I've come up with interesting ideas. I've fiddled around with the idea. Well, this is something, incidentally, Greater Than Games has not asked me for it. This, this is just something I've noodled around. Sure, sure, I, I did sure. Some concepts on, I did some concepts on paper. No, if Greater Than Games had asked me, I couldn't tell you about it. Um, the uh, the uh, I've noodled around with stuff on paper, and I've come up with, like, things which might function, but nothing which I'm super enthusiastic about. Uh you know, I'm sure it could be done, but uh, the question is whether it would be interesting enough at, on its own rights. Like, I'd want something which wouldn't fly just on the basis of the IP. I'd want it to also be legitimately interesting on its own in its own right. So, is there a uh, type of game that that is out there, either genre game or thematic concept or something that that you would really like to explore as a designer? Something that you know, if you had your way, it would be the the type of game that's your next big thing. I have like ten zillion ideas. <laughs> of course, you do. To explore, yeah. No, I got I, there are too many answers to that. Like, like there's this one game which I, concept I had tabled, which is for which should play between like I don't know, like four and forty players, um, and. The problem is, is that playtesting with 40 players is something which is just totally infeasible, even when there's not a pandemic. Um, it, you know, it, ideally, the concept in my head would scale between four players sitting down to play a Euro at a table and all the way up to you're running a mega game at a cup. You uh, are bonkers. <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, and this isn't totally new. Like, uh, Freedom and Freeze has a game which plays, I think, two to six normally, but you can run up to three tables of it at once and people can transfer between boards. Um, you know, the, the game I have in mind is sort of a political court intrigue faction game, uh, where you may have allegiances to different factions and you're trying to get stuff done either for your own personal goals or your factions or to make factions who aren't yours happy with you so you can swap around between them. Uh, and it ought to scale tolerably well to very large player counts because it's sort of like you have a, a, a if you've ever played Senji where there's sort of the opening phase of politicking, similar thing where you'd have like this opening, everybody's going around cutting deals and transferring things. But then at the end of that, everybody has basically, you know, pre-programmed actions which are executed, which should be able, you should be able to blitz through pretty quickly and possibly even in parallel. Um, so anyhow, that's a concept I'd love to explore. I would love to see more games which deal with victory conditions which are not standard ortho game one winner everyone else loses victory conditions i'd love to see games where you know i've had several different game concepts where you might have two different types of victors where you have like winner type a winner type b and if you win both of them great you know like could be one person but you know you might not get both of them i'd love to see games where uh which are um independent victory where every player independently can win or lose and I know why there's fewer of these games. Designing them is hard because <laughs> if you don't have they win intrinsically makes me lose, then you end up, the types of incentives you're dealing with are very different. And most of the established body of game design deals with this basic ortho game premise. So we just don't have the work to build on as much for games 
which could be emergently competitive or emergently cooperative uh, or even socially one or the other. Um, and there are some people who are like, no, I only want like full competitive. If somebody else can win and I, uh, that means I lose, I don't want to deal with that. Fine, that's fine. They can go play the 10 million ortho games which already exist or the other ones which will invariably come out. But there's so few games which work with the like, with this like huge space of other possible victory conditions um, and ways of achieving victory and the huge um, popularity of cooperative games, I think means that there is ample space for people who are open to other types of victory. Like I know I'd love to play in a game where maybe I win, maybe I lose, maybe my friends win, maybe my friends lose. And I can, you know, uh, what a cosmic encounter does it a bit with the shared victory conditions. Sure. But, sure, sure. You know, say like, Oh, I'm going to do this thing in the board play because that means that other players are more likely to take actions which m allow me to win. And I don't mind that it also helps them. Like you can end up with genuinely non-zero-sum game dynamics. Like those are great. It's neat. Well, if well, anyone can crack the nut and bring it to the masses, I think it's you. And I think that's going to do it for us today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show, Eric. You have Jagged Earth is coming on the horizon. Any news about when that's actually going to come out? Why don't I give the quick rundown of the three different things we've talked about and how you can go, uh, get at each of them. So Jagged Earth, I don't know exactly when it's coming out. Uh, that is entirely a publisher question. You know, they're the ones who are on talking to the factories and figuring out what the, the pandemic-inspired delays are. I believe the backer kit for it is open through early May. I want to say May 8th, but I might be wrong on that. It might be May, I might be getting my dates confused. So uh, it, it, basically, from when this posts, my, my impression is that it should be available for order if you act soon. Um, <laughs> yep. The... Uh, the Spirit Island Digital is, as, as of uh, now, like uh, April 20th, is uh, uh, in early Steam early access. It will be in early access for some amount of time as they gather feedback and continue to improve it and iterate on it. Uh, so that should just be available via Steam. And For Science has a Kickstarter which is wrapping up on May 1st. So if this posts uh, as of May 1st or earlier, you can go uh, look at the Kickstarter there. And also, they have like loads of videos and all kinds of information, which I wasn't able to go over. Way more information. Um, They've also hit a lot of stretch goals already and hopefully more to come. Uh, if it is wrapped up, I am positive that they are doing some sort of pledge manager type thing. I don't know the details of that, but I've been told that, yes, there will be a pledge manager uh, and there should be details on the Kickstarter page. Well, I'll have links to all of that in the video description and podcast description for everyone to follow. So once again, thanks for coming on to the Cardboard Herald, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right, it's been great. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcast, and video here on our channel and website, CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience-supported, so if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald. Yeah.